and we're in. Screen Heat Miami. Back again. Yes. This is a special occasion. It is. I did the episode count this morning. This will be our 10th episode. Dun, 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 dun. The Big Ten. Yes. DS. We're in the double digits. DS. We're going to look back on the 100th episode and go, you remember way back when <laughs> we had our 10th episode with a very cool guest, by the way. One of the best. Do you want to announce it? I can't announce this one. Well, it's our episode. It is a triple threat. <laughs> and he has three names. Terrell Alvin McCraney. That is the man. He's the, the man. Oscar winner. Television writer. Screenwriter. Playwright. Triple threat. Most importantly, born and raised. In the 305. Yes, sir. Yes. My and name. also, he's an actor. And he's an actor. Yeah, we didn't know that. I mean, you find that out in the interview. We don't want to give too much away, but yeah. The man definitely has is a multi-hyphenate, as they say. He is. That's so, right. That's going to be a very exciting interview today uh, with hometown hero Terrell Alvin McCraney. And we're very excited to jump into that. But first, as always, the Miami Media and Film Market, our sponsors. Kajik we- Multimedia. Cinevision. 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 I know <laughs> I'm going right. to get that right. Why do I keep wanting to say sun? It's uh, the Miami thing. Cine- it, well, it is. You know, that's part of... The whole thought process of the actual name, so... Cinevision. Yes. Got it. Kajik Multimedia. And Chemical. Yes. So, uh, what else is going on today? A lot going on in the entertainment multiverse. There is so much going on. A couple of episodes back, we were talking about this interesting deal where Sony was pulling out of the MCU with their boy Spider-Man. Yep. But... In a dramatic act three turnaround, they're back in the picture. Just like Spider-Man web slings and gets people caught in the web. That's right. Sticky, sticky, sticky. Yeah, so according to the trade, Spider-Man is returning to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it will be produced by Marvel and Kevin Feige. I hope I'm saying that right. Feige. Feige. Is it Feige? Feige. Are you serious? Is it Kevin Feige? No, it's got to be Kevin Feige. We'll get that right. Is it French? Maybe it's Feige. <laughs> Who knows? I think it's Kevin Feige. Kevin so, Feige. yes, uh, Disney is back on board. Sony's back on board. The caveat being, though, and this is this actually hurts Sony, is that Disney wants to invest in 25% of the film, but that also means they want 25% of the profits. Double digits. Cutting into the revenue. For Sony's cash cow. Yes, Spider-Man is the most popular character in the Marvel Universe and has been for a while. So this is really big, big news. Sure. And we did talk about how Spider-Man was reinvigorated by Marvel. Right. So. And so it it seems to me, and it's interesting because, yeah, I think part of the whole reason why they brought... Sony was brought this this IP back into Marvel is that they felt that just creatively, I guess, Marvel had this sort of know-how on how to tell these stories better than Sony did. And so I guess the fear was, you know, and this is something that we, we now will not find out for a while, is, you know, can Sony tell as good of a story on its own without the Marvel Disney machinery behind it? Yeah, but the thing is, you know, if the machine is moving, the machine is not broke, and not only is it not broke, but the machine is moving in 
an incredible way, why stop it? Right. Yeah. Another thing is, from what I understand, when they when they first did the movie together, Sony wanted to spend more money. Okay. And Marvel said that's not the way we do it. Hmm. So they reeled it back. Interesting. And instead of spending two hundred plus, they spent about one fifty. Because that's the way that they do their movies. The first one, they spend a little bit less. The second one, they spend a little bit more. So they actually saved Sony money. Oh. So just imagine that. You know, I'm sure that that factors into the equation as well. Because if they're being you know, very judicious about the way that they're doing their movies and the way that they're spending their money, then it's actually pretty cost effective. Sure. When you think about it. Yeah. And they, their track record is impeccable. Right. And then I think just being part of that whole movement of what Marvel is doing with the MCU, as opposed to just kind of being this sort of standalone kid standing on the corner going, hey. <laughs> I mean, it's a big hey, because again, Spider-Man, like you said, I think rightly so, is and has been traditionally the most popular character in that world. So it's uh, it's interesting to see how, how this is all going to work out now as as the relationship continues. Yeah, and Tom Holland has done a remarkable job. You know, oh, yeah. arguably, you know, people are saying he's, you know, one of the best Spider-Mans that have been behind the web. Yes. Period. He is a popular web slinger. Yeah. And the fans, myself included, you have been waiting for a unified universe. So, you know, that's Spider-Man, but also X-Men, which is a Sony property as well. Hmm. And, you know, a lot of the Marvel properties, because as they're rolling out this next phase, then you get into a lot of the other extended universes. And I don't know, I'm going to geek out, but I'm waiting for the Shi'ar dynasty and, you know, all of those things that happen further down the line. And you see a lot of the, those characters that weren't necessarily owned by Marvel slash Disney that then are a part of that whole rollout. Right. You know, so, and I'm loving the way phase two looks. Yeah. So, it's exciting. It all starts with Spider-Man. It all does. So yeah, it's <laughs> gonna be it's gonna be fascinating to see how all of that continues to grow. And then obviously next month when we start to see some some of the new stuff coming out on Disney Plus, there'll be some Marvel originals there as well. And just to kind of see how they kind of expand that world now into the digital streaming side of things. Yeah. Speaking so. of digital streaming, I got the iPhone eleven plus. I love it. I love this phone. I've already, I just came back from Atlanta where we have a presence in Atlanta. My company has a presence in Atlanta and I was at one of my client's place. Uh, He's on Lake Lanier, Mm. which is beautiful. You know, you can almost not take a bad shot. Luckily, I know what I'm doing, you know, so I ran it through its paces. The video, the uh, photographs and the three cameras, just dynamic. I love this system. Right. But in terms of the streaming part of it, I'm really exploring the new Apple TV Plus, the app. And I love the way that they've really put it all together and the way the connecting thread between their mediums and their content is rolled out over the app. Hmm. So I have to say so far, you know, it's only been a week, but I can say so far, I really love the way that presence is looking. Interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's technology. It's evolving. It's a phone. Still can't use to those three lenses on the back of that phone. <laughs> Wait till you get it, man. Oh boy, I, I might know. have to get one for your birthday. Maybe, maybe Christmas. There you go. Hey, <laughs> we're here, Apple. If you want to send us some free samples, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, at least one because Kevin already has one. <laughs> That'd be good. Hey, I'll, I'll take another one. Yes. 
So, moving on into the Oscar buzz world. Oof. Last Friday was the world premiere of Martin Scorsese's mob epic, The Irishman. We have been waiting for this. Oh, yes. We talked about this the last podcast. We teased it, yeah. We talked about it. But, yeah, it, it looks like it finally happened. This three-and-a-half-hour Netflix-financed epic mob drama bringing together the greatest hits of mafia actors in Hollywood history. It's crazy. Pesci. De Niro. Pacino. All directed by the legend himself, Martin Scorsese. Scorsese. And it's just uh, it's just everything you could ever want from what we're hearing. Huge ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, you know, not a bad review so far. Uh, everyone just praising it to the hilt. Um, but what was interesting, and this is this is actually coming from one of the top guys at Variety, is that they believe that Netflix now has a big problem. Which is what's that problem? That the, the problem is that The Irishman is too good. Wow. So. Uh, we were saying uh, off mic is is that a backhanded slap at Netflix? Like, <laughs> you're not allowed to, to exceed a certain level of cinematic quality. <laughs> um, but yeah, and it, it can be an issue, um, not because creatively they're not allowed to push boundaries. And and to be fair, and Martin Scorsese talks about this a lot. You know, they had brought this to a traditional studio. I think at one point it was set up at Paramount uh, when Brad Gray was still around, uh, running the show over there, and they kind of took a step back. Uh, some of the other studios as well, you know, folks were passing on it uh, because of the sheer cost. You the know, cost, yeah, that's right. A mob drama, you know, which you figured would be maybe in the 30, 40, 50 million dollar range. Uh, this one came in at a staggering 160 million dollars. And they're saying the, the big reason for that was because of the de- technology required to de-age the principal characters. Yeah. yeah, and there was a lot of talk about that de-aging, especially when the first teasers came out and a lot of people were kind of wonky about it mm. you know but uh looking at the latest teaser i think the latest teaser proves that yeah. it can be done well yeah but the way that it was done i mean just remarkable i mean okay. we were just talking about that yeah so apparently it's uh the folks behind it and you know we had dean lyon in uh, a couple episodes back who's our visual effects guru here uh, but yeah, this was Industrial Light and Magic that got involved with with their technology, which apparently they have been testing and evolving, and and actually been doing tests with the cast for the past several years, just to make sure that this was going to work. So um, it's very interesting. Maybe we'll throw on the website. Uh, the New York Film Festival did a Q and A after the screening, and they threw it up on YouTube, and I watched it on Friday. But they talked specifically. Jane Rosenthal, who's Bob De Niro's producer on the film, um, talks about how they did a test a few years ago with Goodfellas. So they took the original scenes from Goodfellas with De Niro and they had Bob recreate those scenes now and de-age him and put them side by side and she said they couldn't tell the difference. Oh, wow. So. You know, that, and that's something, you know, the technology has moved such that, and this is what Dean Lyon was saying, actually, you know, that really having the actual actors there may become a thing of the past but in this case they have put the actors right. in the past seamlessly right and apparently that was part of the painstaking process because it was a special camera the uh that they had to use the the cinematographer rodrigo prieto uh which uh, actually used to be a client at icm when craig bernstein and a former guest when you worked there when i worked there yeah rodrigo was our client a really nice guy and he 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 called it the three-eyed monster 
So, yeah, and apparently it was a little bulky on the, you know, because we're used to these modern cameras. They're, they're a little smaller, lightweight. Yeah. But because of all the technology involved and the multiple angles, it, it, he called it the three-eyed monster. So it was kind of <laughs> Well, I'm sure Rodrigo see. was, you know, he was used to film cameras. Yeah, so, <laughs> so they, they figured it out, though. And uh, But, yeah, apparently what was, what was most interesting about the technology is that they wanted to do it. They didn't want to shoot the scenes in sort of the CGI way where, you know, you're kind of against a green screen or you're holding that you know that tennis ball in front of your head um they want to shoot it everything very naturalistic you know yeah. without any of that stuff to get in the way of these apparently what was being saying are some of the best performances of their careers um, i think that that's great yeah because you know you have pacino well you got de niro pacino and pesci <laughs> pesci that's what i was thinking. yes yeah you have de niro pacino and pesci bobby cannavale's in it harvey Keitel is in this movie yeah so you have a, a lot of these ogs yeah that you just want them to get up and perform and do their thing and do their thing so having this camera then allows them to actually give it yeah. and give that performance unfettered mm-hmm. so oh, yeah and what was interesting though but the one thing and, and this is a funny anecdote and you see it in the in the q a is that you know this is the first time officially that scorsese has worked with pacino imagine <clears throat> both that's coming crazy up in the new york industry yeah uh scorsese says you know he first met Pacino back in 1970 when he was like directing a play and from 1970 to, to now they hadn't found a, a, a time there were a couple projects I think Modigliani or something that they were close on the films never got made the projects never came together so this is literally the first time that this duo has actually worked together wow. as actor and director and he, he has a funny anecdote about the first time that they were on set together the first scene they actually shot together was uh, a scene where apparently Pacino's sitting on a couch and he's watching some footage of uh, some newsreel of, of the Kennedys uh, and he gets he's supposed to get angry get up and turn off the TV and walk away so they do the first take he's like man it's just so good let's just do it one more time for safety Pacino does it again nails it and then you know the ILM guys the, the DPs are talking to each other like kind of hushed they're like embarrassed like this is such a moment and they got to go to Marty and say look Marty there's an issue like yeah, what, what's what's the problem? You know, I can imagine like, you know, like oh, that, that was great. That was that was one of the best things I've ever. I mean, it was great. The only thing, Marty, I'm sorry, is just, you know, the way he got off the couch. What what was the problem? He's supposed to be 49. <laughs> <laughs> you can't de-age the physical the body, physical can you? Physical body. So he had to then Marty go to Al and say, Al, I'm sorry, but what? What are you talking about? That was great. I you know, I, I felt. It. Yeah, but you were supposed to be 49. All right, I'll do it again. So apparently then it took a few more takes and, and it became a joke at that point where he would do a take. How was that, Marty? Yeah, that felt like a 62. <laughs> do it again. Yeah, they brought him down. <laughs> Kept bringing him down until finally, apparently he was able to deliver the 49-year-old <laughs> they targeted stand-up. That's great. I <laughs> so I, I can't wait to see the movie. I think it's going to be fantastic. Yeah. And well, you know, I, I pulled up this quote. And for me, you know, this kind of said it all. It's a quote from Ava DuVernay uh, that she gave on Twitter. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she saw uh, an early version or she saw the premiere. She was probably there in New York. Yeah. Yeah, She saw the premiere version. And she said, running time is three hours and some change. For me, it flew by. And if I could go in and see it again now, I would in a heartbeat. A film made by a filmmaker who feels free, who has all the tools, all the time, all the talent. And lives up to it. Wow. Wow. That is impressive. 
doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. And imagine for a three and a half hour film to fly by. I mean, you got to credit his longtime editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, yeah. who's worked with uh, Scorsese, I think, since they did Raging Bull together. Yeah. I mean, he keeps his team tight. He does. Yeah. yeah he yeah, keeps yeah. his team tight. He and I'm, does. you know, for me, this was really a seminal moment because uh, one of my favorite movies is Heat. Mm. And so that was the first movie that Pacino and De Niro were in together. Right. And my first passed through that film when they first met in this cafe i wasn't blown away but when i saw it the second time it's that intensity that they both have and they bring to the table they were at a table now i can't imagine what it's going to be like with them interacting in this element as gangsters Mm. i'm just really blown away excited about this film it's going to be in theaters yeah of course it's going to go to netflix i have netflix like you can see it for free but i am hitting the theaters the first day oh yeah as soon as that thing opens up anywhere in miami i'm going the biggest format i can see it in oh gosh yeah that's gonna be that's gonna be impressive to see so i'm, I'm excited and i'm very excited about your interview speaking of big terrell alvin mccraney second time i interviewed him is this our first oscar winner i think it is no no paul brett you're right yes. sorry paul we're just getting Cheers, so many Oscar-winning. <laughs> We're getting so many Oscar winners. We can't keep up. First Oscar-winning screenwriter. Yes, there you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so th- this was a, a really great interview. This is like I said, the second time that I've interviewed him. The first time was around the time that he won the Oscar for Moonlight. This one, you know, we have David Makes Man, which is on Oprah's ne- network own, and you know, he really dives into the thought process hmm. of making that happen. We love that they actually shot it here in Florida and he kept it here in Florida and actually populated the crew and in front of the camera with a lot of people here from Miami and from Florida. So uh, certainly, certainly I was really just, you know, at the top, top, top tier of my game. Wow. And uh, thank you, Mr. Terrell Alva McCraney for another incredible interview now i did this interview over skype and so the connection wasn't the best in the world but the information is the best in the world so certainly uh we have done our best to ensure that all the information comes through very clearly but there may be some fits and starts so please bear with us but also please enjoy this incredible incredible turn by Terrell Alvin McCraney. Let's do it. My name is Terrell Alvin McCraney. Uh, born and raised in Miami, Florida. 305. It's been a journey. Uh, yeah. Let's start from the beginning. You know, I'm going to take this a different way. When did you know you wanted to be a writer? I don't necessarily know if there was ever a point when I wanted to be a writer per se. I'd always wanted to be an artist um, and a storyteller. And in the Western tradition of storytelling, it uh, just became apparent that being a writer was a part of being an artist and being a storyteller in that way. Um, In the performance tradition that I wanted to be a part of. But I started out very early at African Heritage Cultural Arts Center um, and other places, uh, the M Ensemble, uh, my church, um, and doing performance and performing for, um, you know, any event that storytelling was necessary or available or included. And um, I happened to be very lucky in that, um, fortunate in some ways that the, the uh, Miami-Dade public uh, school system 
had many opportunities for young folks who wanted to tell stories in their gifted and magnet programs to learn how to do that. So um, I took a lot of writing courses. I took a lot of acting courses um, from a very early age. Um, and then at about 14 or, 15, 14 or 15, I met a man by the name of Teo Castellanos, who um, has been a mentor um, pretty much all my life. And since then, um, he introduced me into guerrilla theater and theater of essential theater and introduced me to some some names like Willis Poland, Augusto Boal, uh, Jersey Kotowski, um, Peter Brook. That really influenced me as a way to help me gain, um, gain insight on how to be a, flu a fluid artist. Um, but also there are folks around me, uh, of course, creating work all the time, like Itsuzaki Shange, um, who lived in Tallahassee for a while and had a residency at the University of Florida um, and doing real poems. Poems. There are, you know, artists who preceded me who did works like For Color Girls um, by Intazaki Shange and many other folks, really, who just paved the way to show, you know, young black artists, young queer black artists like myself, that like that multi um, multidisciplinary art is actually the way black art always works. Um, and so that was very um, influential. And so, you know, there was never a moment where I thought I want to just I want to be a writer. I always wanted to be an artist. I always wanted to be a storyteller um, since watching my grandfather at church. And it was just um, that writing served as a way to do that. So I want to take it back to the African Heritage Cultural Arts Center and Teo Castellanos, who I know he's a friend. Um, so with the African Heritage Cultural Arts Center, can you tell me a little bit about that and that experience? Sure. I went to the African Heritage uh around the time that I was about uh, eight or eight or nine for the first time. And M Ensemble um, did a lot of performances there and a lot of work at, the, at uh, African Heritage. Um, and they allowed me to um, see many variations on how theater was made and constructed. Um, so yeah, it was a great place. And you said that Teo Casalanos was a, a big mentor for you. When did you connect with Teo and how did that relationship develop? So, like I said, I met him when I was about 13 or 14 or 15 years old. Um, and he introduced me and some other colleagues um, who were still uh, very active in art, some of them very active in art in Miami, um, to... Uh, works by Peter Brook and Augusto Boal and Viola Spolin, um, Jersey Gotowski, uh, what, again, other folks in the European scene and the South American scene were doing um, in terms of essential theater. And I think his gift to us was the ability to see how um, theater was functional on so many levels, not just behind a proscenium arch. So... This is like a full circle thing, because from what I understand, his daughter now works on your show. Just tell me a little bit about how that came about. So Jacqueline uh, Castellanos, who is Teo's daughter, um, again, came up in the same tradition with us. I mean, she was often at shows uh, when we were working uh, and worked very closely with her dad before going off to Columbia uh, to study uh, writing in, in, and has written... Um, on shows like The Affair, 
um, uh, for a long period of time and written, um, uh, was an assistant to Robert De Niro. And when she, when she said that she was looking for another writing job, I said, I'm doing this show. And so it was, um, a, a perfect fit for a writer who had already been in the field practicing, um, who was a story editor at already when we needed one. And also, um, she, she's from Miami and had written, uh, extensively about that. So it was a um, so it was one of those moments that was less about um, knowing her before and, and being in touch with a writer who was already had great credentials, also um, is a person of color, is Latinx and black, and understood the policy politics. She uh, she understood the she understood the world that David was coming from from a woman's point of view, um, from a woman of color's point of view, and I thought that was really important. Yeah, that's great. So we're going to get to David Makes Man in uh, just a minute, but I wanted to kind of fill in the history before we get to where David Makes Man starts. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how Moonlight came about and how you uh, matriculated through that experience. Yeah, Moonlight is a film that we made in Miami and that won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Uh, and we won a couple, a, a couple other Academy Awards and some um, for adapted, best adapted screenplay. Um, Barry Jenkins filmed it, um, I think, in like nineteen in twenty fifteen, um, based off of a script called "In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue" that I had um, that I had written when I in two thousand three, and um, yeah, it was an incredible experience. So I just want to get then into David, David Makes Man and how David Makes Man happened and how that experience moved forward, uh, how you connected with that and how that came to the world. Um, so I um, originally started a project uh, of just wanting to chronicle about a young man who is a, a part of a gifted program. As I mentioned before, I was in gifted or in the gifted and talented programs in Miami Dade for most of my life, um, and uh, one of the things that was very interesting to me is the is learning about code switching and learning about um, just trying to be in two worlds at once. And Miami, in particular, is one is a, is the kind of place that um, that has so many um, uh, night and day socioeconomic landscapes, and um, and so, you know, Liberty City exists alongside, you know, um, uh, the design district and Little Haiti is right north. Like those are two different worlds, but two, two diff almost two different realities. And um, being bused to school in different parts of the community made me very aware of um, my surroundings um, and very aware of different uh, expectations in those surroundings. Um, and so you, as a kid, in order to survive that, you, you sort of, you know, pull out all kinds of portions of yourself. And David Makes Man, um, originally, my friend Andre Holland asked me to sort of figure out anything that I wanted to do in order to serialize that story. Um, and so the first thing I did was um, write about this experience of going you know, in my neighborhood of Homestead, in Homestead, when I lived in Homestead for about three or four years, five years, really. Um, and uh, 
figuring out the difference between what it was like in the projects and what it was like at this magnet school where there were very wealthy students um, and families um, and figuring out why I was being bused to get this better education, quote unquote, and why that education wasn't offered in my home school. Um, so anyway, I took that experience to um, to a couple of people. I first workshopped at an HBO where they passed on it. Um, but then I went to uh, uh, Michael B. Jordan um, and his company Outlier, who were really interested in stories about in the narrative, especially around a young black man um, interrogating this double consciousness. Um, and he was really excited about it. And, and then we eventually ended up at OWN uh, uh, after Mike Kelly and Melissa Loy um, from um, Prage Fright really got involved. We took the show over to a couple networks, but mostly um, we took it to OWN and OWN was very excited about it. Um, uh, Winfrey, you know, put it as made it a part of her her uh, her network. She changed over to more narrative drama. Once once MBJ, Mike Michael B. Jordan, myself, and Melissa Moore, Melissa Loy, and and Mike Kelly got together, um, we took the piece to uh, or took the idea, the pitch of it to a number of networks, and um, they um, the one we landed on. Um, because of their excitement and their 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 connection to the black to a black audience was the own network, um, and Oprah Winfrey then made it a part of her lineup. Yeah, that's great. So I just want to talk a little bit about the production of David Makes Man and where you filmed it, how it was filmed, and how you felt about the development of the production aspect of it. We we. The writer's room for David Makes Man took place in, in Los Angeles. And again, we cultivated some writers from very many different places. So there are like, uh, I believe, about eight of us. Um, um, there were uh, two executive writers, uh, Dee Harris um, Lawrence, who is from Los Angeles, um, a black woman who really, you know, again, allowed us to keep um, a woman's vantage, a black woman's vantage point at um core to David Mix Man, which I, which I really wanted and appreciated. Um, and then we had three writers from Miami um, or from South Florida who were on the writing team. Um, and um, another writer who was from the Virginia DC area and another writer, um, a season, an executive writer who was from LA, um, from Los Angeles and had grown up there. Um, and that, allowed us to really, you know, draft 10 episodes that we felt like were, um, that could speak, you know, a, a language about David from many different standpoints. We then filmed in Orlando, um, uh, right, right across, right around the Universal Studio lots. Um, it was really important to film in Florida. Um, and we, um, and it was an amazing opportunity. We got to work with a lot of local talent. We got to work with got to work with a lot of folks from from Miami. Um, and um, yeah, we wrapped in December and began airing uh, in uh, August. And I think that that's great that it really feels like Miami, and you can really feel the Miami experience. I even saw one of my my homies, uh, Keith C. Wade, in the first episode as a bus driver. So, you know, that was really a, a great nod. And, you know, just in general, 
this show is a melange of not only the strong narratives, but also uh, a very strong artistic approach. Can you tell me a little bit about the approach that was taken with David Makes Man? The direction, the style, the um, art direction, uh, it really is a tour de force. Was that a discussion early on with the directors and the other producers? Um, how did you land on that particular style and feel for the show? Uh, the sh- so the show in itself, I don't know if necessarily we talked about a style per se that we were going for. I think we talked a lot about, um, you know, the subject matter of the show in order to uh, inform um, its structure and its 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 form, um, which, you know, is a, it, it's centered on David's experience and his his interior experience of things, which, you know, we don't have we didn't have a lot of. Um, other examples of, you know, doing a show that's a lot about what's happening in a 14 year old black kid's head. Um, but it was really important for us to, it was really important for us to do that and do it in a way that felt like, um, though it was based in reality, it's also a part of, you know, his, his incredible, um, need to imagine life outside or inside himself, um, and to make up things. So a lot of those conversations were had with all of the, um, the directors, uh, with Michael Francis Williams, who directed the pilot, um, with Kyle Adrian Scott, who um, directed the first um, uh, block call season, uh, the two, three, and four. Um, then with Dane Reed, who um, is a Emmy-nominated director for Handmaid's Tale, she directed uh, five, six, and seven. And um, then we got with the incredible Cheryl Dunyer, uh queer black artist, and, and uh, who is, you know an amazing artist in general and she directed the last the last brace so eight nine and ten the and the finale she directed great so um i'm going to take a little bit of departure and then i want to revisit uh for a little bit david makes man but i wanted to talk a little bit about your play so can you tell me a little bit about that how that came about in the process in um making that happen Ms. Black for President. Uh, that was a piece. So Tina Landau wanted to do a, ple- a piece at Steppenwolf, which is uh, our our home theater. We're ensemble members at, at Steppenwolf, um, which is based in Chicago. And um, Tina went, really wanted to explore a play um, that touched on a lot of what was happening in the world around us currently. And it just so happened to be, um, you know, uh, the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. Um, and um, Tina wanted to do a story about Terrence Allen Smith, who uh, was uh, had a drag persona named Joan Jet Black, um, who had run for pres- uh, mayor of Chicago um, in 19, around 1990, 89-90, against then-Mayor Dick Daly. Um, and had lost, of course, but also gained lots of attention while doing it. Um, and I say, of course, only because if a drag queen had had run and won uh, the mayoral uh, race in 89 and 90, you'd have known about it by now. Um, but this is a story that we hadn't heard about um, 
in in large part because um, of so, so much was happening and so much was going on around that time, but also because of the silencing of uh, queer voices, particularly queer black ones. But uh, Tina found out that um, Terrence, along with Queer Nation, had run for president of the United, had started a campaign to run for president of the United States and ended up on the floor of the Democratic National Convention in 1992. Um, and wanted to make a piece about that um, that moment. So, can you talk talk a little bit about the production production and development of the play, and um, exactly how uh, you got into the specific character of the play? Tina Landau found Terrence Allen Smith, who is still alive and lives in San Francisco, um, and did a lot of interviewing of of them. Um, and their experience of that moment. There's a lot of research on YouTube. Um, if you Google C-SPAN of that convention, you can see, um, you can find Terrence Allen Smith and Queer Nation and some of the ACT UP folks in that time. We also, um, Joe Jeffries uh, is a, a dramaturg and historian who was with Terrence Allen Smith at that time, had also chronicled that entire weekend in a small, um, in a journal. And so we used a lot of the research that folks had done and um, and that informed um, uh, our that informed our sound design that informed uh, that informed our sound design that informed um, our lighting and and definitely, David Zinn used it to inform our set so that our set looked very much like um, um, uh, a former performance space in Chicago, in Chicago where uh, they actually would have launched a kind of campaign like this. Um, and so it, it's just, it, so a lot of the history and the research was there and Tina, led by Tina, we all just sort of dove into it and, and, and used it as a starting point. Okay. Was it difficult to balance the production of that play and what was going on with David Makes Man? No, because we had already filmed David Makes Man. We we wrapped David Makes Man in December. There was press, and we did, and there's still press about it. I mean, it's still it's still um, run. It's still you know airing until, and we we continue until our finale, which is in the middle of October. I attended the the premiere here in Miami, which was phenomenal. Was there a lot of uh, buildup that went along with uh, the launch of David Makes Man? There wasn't. I mean, again, during the play, which was in the summer, um, there there was some press for for sure for the show. So from what I understand, you uh, have taught quite a bit. The University of Miami, Yale. Are you still teaching? And can you talk to me about that experience? I'm the chair of the department there. So I run that department uh, for the for Yale School of Drama. Um, and we have nine students. And every year we uh, get around 200 applications for three spots. Um, and yeah, we just started class in August um, and welcomed a new a new uh, cohort to the to the, the succession. And we have um so it's it's gratifying I, my students are really engaged and really awesome yeah yeah i guess what i'm getting to is um is it difficult to balance you're a multifaceted artist 
an educator? Is it difficult to balance all of these uh, different high touch points at the same time? Um, I mean, life can be difficult. So in general, I think, you know, one has to be very careful and, and mindful about uh, time and intention. But being an artist to me has always been taught to you. you there is this isn't these aren't de- these aren't different or divergent streams. These are all a part of the same thing. This is a part. This is a part of being an artist, um, at least in the way that I was taught. Um, you know, you you must be. You know, Alvin Ailey was a dancer and an actor. Uh, Martha Graham was a was a choreographer um, for film and for you know for stage. Uh, you know, Catherine Dunham was was a was a performer all around. You know, you you have you do everything you do, and that it all feeds the 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 work. Um, and the work is really about just questioning um, how you and 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 um, with what intensity do you show a mirror to society, and that you must encompass all of, you know, the aspects of that that you can. So teaching is a part of that. That's not something that's outside of that role to me. It's a part of the same, you know, the, the inspiration that I get for my students is the same as the inspiration I get from my students to go into my work. So, um, yeah. So I'm going to get back to David Makes Man. Uh, it certainly has so much critical appraise. The Rotten Tomatoes score uh, from the last time I checked was 98%. So how does it feel to get that praise, that adulation, that big uh, critical uh, voice and push for the show? That, that's, that people are, are finding it and, you know, enjoying it and, and find it fascinating. I mean, I think, you know, it's a show that deals with very um, real and tough issues and on a platform that sometimes people want to not engage that. And so the fact that some folks are engaging it is important and great. Um, but also it's been great to work with OWN to provide more context for um, our audience, ways in which folks can talk about mental health, talk about um, trauma, talk about, you know, uh, double consciousness and find ways in which we can engage and, and seek healing through, through our, our, com- our conversation, our discourse together. Yeah, it certainly does get story. It's a story that's not seen. And there are a multitude of stories that, especially in our community, are not necessarily explored. So can you speak on the, the point of uh, being able to get out stories that aren't seen and looking forward, um, how do you feel would be the next steps for those that are coming up to get their stories out? Well, to be fair, there are no new stories. Um, we, the human experience, uh, we tell facets of it over and over again. What's new about those stories is the way in which we tell them and the people who tell them. Um, so what I try to get young folks or early artists to recognize, because they don't necessarily have to be young, but they could be early in their career, is that you know, reinventing, a sto- reinventing story 
um, is, is futile. What you really want to do is tell it from your perspective. And there, and that is the thing. And, and that means you have to get to know yourself. You have to really get to know, uh, other people and get to know how they respond to what you do. You have to pick up social cues. You have to see how long you've been telling a story and if people's eyes glaze over or if they start shuffling or they want to move or they're uncomfortable. I mean, that, that too is a part of your ability to tell a story. And it's one of the reasons why I find it so important that all storytellers from any walk of life um, figure out or take some time to practice live. Because in the live practice, because if you practice storytelling live, if you watch an audience watch your work, if you uh, if you engage, if you try to you know perform a work and and really engage people in front of you, you start to recognize how folks are in t taking in your the timbre of your voice. Um, so we want you want to make sure that people are hearing and experiencing what you're doing in the way you intend to, and that takes practice. And so it's what's really important is that you know if there's a desire to tell a story even if it may be like someone else's story, that's fine, that's okay. I mean, you know, you can only tell so many love stories, you can only tell so many revenge stories. The, but the point is, is that you tell it and as specific to you and your experience as you can. Um, but also that you take the time and have the grace and compassion to know your audience. One of the biggest lessons we can take is from Tyler Perry in that he's one of the most prolific and successful playwrights, um, but also, um, movie makers because he has an intimate relationship with his audience he knows them he knows what they are and what will engage them what will give them moments of pause and 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 challenge them um and what will bring them joy and that's really important to know absolutely so um, what do you have coming up? David Makes Man airs, keeps airing until uh, October, around October 16th. Okay. Um, and we always end with two different things. One is advice to up-and-coming artists. And the second bit is what would you tell your 16, 17-year-old self if you could go back today? The advice I always give to early artists or uh, early career artists um, is, you know, to find a way to practice and to perfect your practice. Really find a way to find what works for you and how it works for you um, and really hone in on how that can be sustainable um, no matter what your economic status is. Um, because if they can take away your art because they took away your access, then um, then they have you. But if you have your art forever, if you if it's yours and it and it and it's something you can practice regardless of if someone's paying you for it or not, then it's something you can perfect regardless of whether or not someone's paying you, um, which I think is really important. Um, and you know. I and I tell 16 year olds the same thing I would tell my 16 year old self the same thing I'm telling myself now which is you know there's there is um there is a there is something in the trying of your uh of your of your patience that will make you perfect um and so you just have to have more patience and more um space for things 
that will allow you to become more perfect in who you are. Um, the, there were things will, that will test your faith, test your, you know, sensibility. But it's important for you to, again, uh, see that as um, it, that any challenge to who you are and to your moment is actually a great um, opportunity to um, to become a great way to become more perfect in who you are. All right, we're back in. Yes, that was great. Mr. Terrell Alva McCraney. Very interesting dude. Yeah, yeah. David Makes Man. Oh, wow. Yeah, what a great show. And it's, uh, you know, so far critics are saying it's one of the best shows on TV. I mean, it's getting all the right sort of buzz and, and really just kind of hitting into Owen's new strategy. Uh, yeah. You know, they had they hired a new president. Tina Perry has been there for seven or eight months, and she's actually been the one that's kind of been leading the charge into this more sort of, you know, high-end original content. Yeah, drama, episodic. Yeah. Uh-huh. So and and trying to lure younger viewers back into the the TV and cable TV landscape, you know, as we know, they've been going in droves to the streaming land, but uh, it looks like they're making a strong pr- play to bring some of those eyeballs, specifically, you know, what they're going after, twenty to fifty year old African American women. Yeah, and that seems like that's been a demographic that's worked well for Oprah. Yes, I mean, obviously, so. yeah, that's her brand. It's very strong within that demo. So. Uh, it seems like, you know, a, a show like David Makes Man kind of hits all those marks and, and, you know, just the relationship between the son and the mother and the whole school. And, you know, it's just it's something that's very powerful. I think it really draws you in and and just the authentic representation of that community. Yeah. And we know about the authentic Miami feel of it. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Because, you know, we went to the premiere. Yeah. Which was amazing. And, you know, like I told Terrell, the melange of art, drama. I mean, it really hits the note on so many ways. You know, it has a cinematic feel mm-hmm. and it has a very visually powerful cinematic feel. Yeah. So certainly, you know, everyone check that out. It's on Wednesdays at 10. Yes. Please watch and support the show. It's it's worth your attention. It's really, really good. Yeah. And speaking of shuffling the deck hmm. from cable to your terrestrial shows there is a lot of poaching happening from place to place. There's a show that I've been checking out called The Politician. Okay. Ryan Murphy. Oh, yeah. $300 million deal with Netflix. Huge overall deal. And he is churning them out. Mm-hmm. I have not seen the next American Horror Story. I've been waiting on it. But certainly I've seen all of the American Horror Stories. And uh, it's a series that I love. You know, we talked a lot about um, Mr. Porter's turn and he won Emmy, yeah. you know, for uh, for Pose, which is another Ryan Murphy project. Right. But his turn for me on American Horror Story was equally as powerful. But the politician, the critics aren't loving the politician as much. Hmm. They're saying it's one of Ryan Murphy's uh, lower critical rated right. shows. I like it. Right. You know, his his shows are, you know, very much drama and the soap opera and, you know, the, all the pomp and circumstance. Mm-hmm. It's really incredible to me to see the pace that he's churning out these projects, though. Yeah. Versace, which 
you know, nominated and won Emmys. Uh, you know, now, uh, you know, like I said, the politician, American Horror Story that just came out. Uh, Netflix is really, really doing a number on pulling in the talent. Yeah. But I'm wondering, you know, going back to Ryan's situation, if, if it maybe there is a bit of fatigue, because when you're churning out that much content and there's so much pressure with such a huge deal, I'm wondering if, if this inability to kind of let these projects sit for a while mm-hmm. and just kind of really develop and mature, you know, which is what HBO was known for traditionally. I mean, they would spend years developing a show yeah. before they gave it a shot uh, just to make sure they had every little thing right. And I'm wondering if sort of the Netflix approach where it's like content, content, constantly pushing stuff out is may ultimately affect creativity, particularly in the TV landscape in a, in a negative way. Yeah, but there's so, so much demand for content now. Right. You know, it's just like a black hole in terms of the amount of content that needs to be, you know, churned out. Right. And there's only so many showrunners. There's only so many writers. Right. Of course, there's more that are coming up and, you know moving through the ranks but the way that these content providers and the way that these streaming services are popping up you know there's such a high demand so if it's there right 300 million dollars <laughs> oh, I'm not gonna turn that away. I mean, what, what are you gonna do? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's definitely it's it's, it's serious business, uh, and there is a lot of pressure on on these showrunners and these creators. Like you said, there there are not so many of them at that high level that can do this on such a consistent basis, and it's it's very hard. Uh, I was talking to uh, our buddy J.M. Garcia off the mic about how hard it is, even for the seasoned showrunners, to come up with hit after hit. Uh, even in the traditional network landscape, we couldn't think of many of the biggest showrunners who were able to have, you know, a major network hit followed by another major network hit followed, you know, um, you know, whether it's Seinfeld, I think spinoffs, maybe, you know, the, the one example we could think of in the 90s was, you know, when Cheers gave way to Frasier, you know, and that yeah. that was unique. Um, and uh, but that is not that's not the norm. No. It's not. So to say that one showrunner, even a Ryan Murphy, can just churn out show after show, hit after hit, is is a tall order. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And certainly this is, you know, par for the course of what we're talking about here at Screen Heat Miami. Right. Which is, you know, this evolution of the industry. And it's something. Things are moving so fast. Mm. I think within the last five years, there has been more change than... You know, maybe the 40 years prior. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just sort of that, that way that technology just, it doesn't take a linear pass. It's exponential. So, yeah. you know, we, we're kind of at the tail end of the bottom of this curve that's just going to shoot up, essentially. You know, like I said, with endless amounts of, of space and, and ability to stream endless amounts of content all over the world constantly. Um, it's going to take a huge gargantuan effort to really fill that void. I mean, it's it's almost unfillable. It's impossible. Yeah. But, you know, at some point, you know, is it going to always just be content, content, quantity? Or are we going to take a step back and say, okay, maybe we, we can do with less content so long as it hits a certain level of quality? Yeah, well, I think HBO has, you know, righted the ship in terms of their output from last year the output for this Emmys you know they're back up on the top right and certainly they had a model of putting out a lot of quality 
as opposed to quantity. Yeah. I'm still interested to see what's going to happen with HBO Max. I know. It's going to be another another thing that's going to ramp up, and, and who knows where that's going to go. Obviously, that'll be driven by the flagship being HBO and their content. Uh, I'm sure they'll have all the Game of Thrones spinoffs and prequels, and there'll be all sorts of interesting new things coming that we don't know about yet. But, yeah, that's just going to add more fuel to the fire. <laughs> you got to get the inside scoop. Yes. <laughs> We're going to go in. Time Warner, if you're listening, we want to talk to you. I think that we've been pretty good, though, in terms of the target of things. Two weeks prior, and then boom. Yeah. There it is. There it is. So, yeah, let's see what we can get. Oh, I'm excited. There's going to be a lot going on in the next few weeks. And pretty soon we'll be talking to you. You know, we're already into October, uh, November. Like I said, you know, we're going to have a couple new streaming platforms. Disney Plus is dropping next month. Yeah. Uh, so there'll be a lot to talk about there. Apple Plus around the same time, a little after. So between now and the end of the year, it's going to be a plethora of content. Yes. Plus, we'll be back with our own review of The Irishman as soon as we get to see it in a theater. <laughs> that's right. The biggest format I could see it on. Oh, man, that's going to be great. Yep. So um, I think that we're going to wrap this episode up. We're going to take a week off. I'm heading off to Europe oh, across the pond. Poor guy. <laughs> it's so tough. <laughs> so we'll see if I could talk to our friend Adrian Wooten, our friend Paul Brett. And there you go. And uh, we'll be back. Maybe we could live stream it next week and then we'll just put that up there somewhere on social media. (laughs) (laughs) Live stream having pints. Love it. (laughs) That'll be a whole nother screen. So Uh, we'll be back on the 17th. Yes. And we we, we do have more guests lined up. We have some amazing interviews in the can. Uh, We're going to get a few more. We're not going to say who they are just yet, but they're going to be great. They're always going to be at the level of heat that we're accustomed to. Absolutely. Nice and toasty. What do you say? Now we have two Oscar winners under the belt. Oh, that's that's hot. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Hopefully more soon. I want to see more of our local filmmakers and artists coming up like the Terrells and the Barry Jenkins of the world yeah. and, and making a run. You know, Phil Lord. We have so many of our guys that are just doing it. So we can't wait to talk to the next one. Yep, absolutely. All righty. OK, so for this one, we're signing off. We're out. <laughs>